James chapter 5, let's start in verse 7, therefore, that's like a summary statement of all that we've looked at. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently until it receives the early and the latter early and latter rain. You also be patient. That's a command, by the way. A lot of imperatives in the book of James. Here's another one. Establish your hearts. Why? For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble, murmur, complain. A lot of adjectives there against one another. Brethren, he's not writing the non-believers. Lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endured, and you have heard of the perseverance or the patience of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. So we're going to finish James today. And when I started James, I told you it's one of the smallest books in the Bible. It's only 100 verses. Now, I had planned six weeks of preaching in James. This is our 12th week. So God had other ideas, right? A lot of power in this book. Uh, someone came up to me and said, Pastor Bob, I've been a Christian for 10 years. And I wish I heard this series when I was a brand new Christian I think you should market this series to new believers, and we're going to do that. Uh, we're going to take that advice. Received an email from a lady in our congregation. She said, many years ago, I was sitting in a Sunday service at CC Del Delco and challenged to integrate what I believe into what I do to put my faith in action. Pastor Bob handed out a sign that on it was printed that faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead, James 2.17. So this is 10 years ago I was preaching through James, handed this out, told people to put on their computers, their refrigerators. She said, this is still hanging on my bulletin board in the kitchen to this day. That was beginning of a major shift in my life. I began to understand that my salvation meant nothing if I did not extend God's love into the world through my work. I first needed to go on a journey to understand my true calling, who I was always meant to be. It took me to Nepal, Honduras, Haiti, Mozambique, the Amazon. It took me to volunteer in staff positions at nonprofit like Hope International and Jobs for Life. It has eventually led me where I am today with the Sunshine Nut Company, sharing stories and integrating mission with business. Wow, that's impressive. And that's what the Word of God can do. When the Word of God goes deep into our hearts, God propels us out and we begin to live a life that we were always called to live. So before I get into my message, I just want to say this. Let's not let what we've learned in James fall to the ground. Let's not just move on to another book of the Bible. Let's look at these deep truths. One of the spiritual disciplines you can practice is called scripture saturation. Now I know some of you are reading through the Bible in a year and you have all your Bible reading plans. But one of the things you can do is take a small part of scripture like James, 100 verses, and read it every single day. Now, there's a pastor in the Midwest who did this with Romans 8 for a year, and he said a year later he was still learning things in Romans 8. So James is small enough to do this. Uh, I used to think a habit was 30 days. I just read something. It takes 66 days to form a habit. So things got a little harder uh, lately. But 
uh, that's a great spiritual discipline you guys can practice. So let's finish James. James has been about real faith. I've said that every single week. In other words, what are the attributes, what are the character traits of people that have real faith in Jesus Christ? Everyone in this room was born into a faith. Even if you were born into atheism, that's a faith. That's a belief system. Hindu, Muslim, derivatives of Christianity, denominations, we were all born and trained in something. There comes into a part of your life where you choose your faith. For me, 21 years old, I chose that Jesus Christ would be my Lord and Savior, and I entered into real faith. Most of you have that testimony. And all through James, we've looked at what are the character traits of real faith, and we end with what I think is the supreme trait, and that is people with real faith endure to the end. One day we'll cross the finish line, God willing. Philippians 2 verse 12 says that we're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's where we get the word gymnasium from, by the way. We are working out our faith. It's working out of us. Now you all know we're not saved by works, right? But we're certainly working out our faith. James says faith without works is dead. And so we are trying to work out with fear and trembling. Why is there fear and trembling? Because if you walk long enough with God, you're going to face the inevitable inconsistencies, peaks and valleys, complexities of life in a fallen world that is anti-God and anti-faith. We are pushing the proverbial elephant up the stairs. We are working against the flow. And all the while, we have this full assurance and confidence that he who began this work in us will complete it to the final day, and you and I will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, there's a tension here, and there's a tension that's good for us. Listen, no one believes in grace more than me. Grace changes everything. And when we get to heaven, we're getting there on the merits of another, on Jesus Christ. However, there's enough scripture that tells us, like the 10 virgins, we need to keep our lamps burning. We need to abide in Christ. We need to work out our salvation. For every verse that he who began a good work and you will keep it till the final day, there's the tension of be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the things of the Lord. So conviction when it comes over us, good for us. This tension, good for us. Remember, Dallas Willard said grace isn't opposed to working, it's opposed to earning. We're not earning God's favor, we're working out what he's already done. So we're going to look at patience this morning. It's translated endurance five times. James uses it here in verses 7 through 11. This is one place where I think the Greek word for patience can help you. Now, uh, I'm not a Greek expert. I know a little Greek. He makes fantastic gyros. But the Greek word here is macrothumeo. You all know what macro is. It's the overview, the big picture view. Thumeo is temperament. In other words, James is saying if you're going to be a Christian, you need to take the long view of life. You need to take the long view of history. Don't judge God in the snapshot. Uh, the illustration I'm going to leave with you is that God is a marinator, not a microwaver. You all got that? God's a marinator, not a microwaver. Praise the Lord. Uh, can you imagine if I had you coming over for dinner? Hey, guys, come over for dinner. I'm going to make steaks. We're going to... We're going to eat. It's going to be amazing. And you walk in my house and you're like, I don't smell anything. You ever get that fear when you go to somebody's house? Geez, I'm here for dinner, but I, there's, not, there's nothing wafing through the house. What's going on here? 
What if, what if you told me that? I said, oh, don't worry about it. I just Googled, and we can microwave steaks seven minutes in a microwave, and they're going to be amazing. You'd be like, what? I've never heard of that. What? Are you serious? God's not a microwaver. He's a marinator, okay? And we live in a microwave culture. We live in a hypersensitive culture where you watch a movie for 10 minutes, you listen to a song you know, for 10 seconds, and you want to get on to the next thing. And I have watched in the church celebrities that supposedly become Christians, they haul them up on a stage, give their testimony, and five years later you never hear of them. God's not into that. God's into taking Paul seven years into Arabia, Moses 40 years on the backside of a desert. He's a marinator. There's a deep and abiding word he longs to do in us. I'll give you another illustration. Paul uses this idea of a race. We're all running a race. So whether it's a race, a ball game, think about a marathon, anything like that, What's the most difficult part of any race? Yeah, some are saying the start, some are saying the end. Look, the start's easy, right? How many, how many runners get out of the blocks too early, right? You're ready to go. You're pumped. You're, you're ready to go. The end is easy because when you can see that tape, you'll kick into another gear no matter how tired you are because the end's in view. The funky middle. <laughs> The funky middle where you want to quit and it looks like you're falling behind. And why do I do this? And, and this is a midlife crisis, the middle of a marriage, the middle of a career, the funky middle. For Israel, it was the land between. They weren't in Egypt anymore and they weren't in the promised land anymore. They were in the funky middle. Loathing manna, loathing miracles. Does this sound familiar to anybody? And so we've got to navigate what is the most difficult time. Jesus said in the parable of the soils, there are people that get out of the gate strong with great joy. They hear the gospel and they're a firebrand for God. And then the cares of this life and the trials of this world come and they're sidelined. They don't make it to the end. One of the reasons why we need endurance, and I'll be serious here, is because we live in a world of pain. We live in a world of suffering. We live in a world of injustice. In Malachi, the Jews looked around and said, where's the God of justice? How come he doesn't show up? Why doesn't he right wrongs? Why is there evil in the world? One of my favorite Christmas songs is from Amy Grant called My Grown-Up Christmas List. So here's my lifelong wish, my grown-up Christmas list. Not for myself, but for a world in need. No more lives torn apart that wars would never start, that everyone would have a friend and right would always win, that love would never end. This is my grown-up Christmas list. And I think we'd all say that's what we want to see, right? But that's not the world we live in. We live in a world of injustice. Now, I'm reading again the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. In the 70s, it was a bestseller. He was a Soviet army captain in World War II, under Stalin's regime, he was put in prison, hence the gulag. He's, he's a literary giant, and he gives us the details of what happened in the Soviet Union. Remember, Stalin killed 25 million Russians, his own people. Now listen to what Solzhenitsyn writes. This is remarkable. He said, if the intellectuals in the plays of Chekhov, who spent all their time guessing what would happen in 20, 30, 40 years, so this is under the czars, right? This is before Soviet Union. 
In other words, if they looked in the future, if they were guessing what would happen, they would have never figured this one out. If they, if they were guessing 20, 30, 40 years would have been told that interrogation by torture would be practiced in Russia, that prisoners would have their skulls squeezed with iron rings, that a human being would be lowered into an acid bath, that they would be trussed up naked to be bitten by ants and bedbugs, that a ramrod heated over a primus stove would be thrust up their anal canal, that a man's genitals would be slowly crushed beneath the toe of a jackboot, and that in the luckiest possible circumstances, prisoners would be tortured by being kept from sleeping for a week, by thirst, and being bitten, beaten bloody to a pulp, not one of Chekhov's plays would have gotten to its end because all the heroes would have gone off to insane asylums. Stalin kills 25 million, Hitler 6 million Jews, Saddam Hussein, 45 million die in World War II. This is man's legacy. Richard Dawkins, the atheist, by the way, is telling us that man is getting better. We're evolving. The bloodiest century in history was the last century. Some of it were 50 years removed. This is man's legacy on the earth. Where's the God of justice? Where, why doesn't God step in? Be patient, brethren. Listen to this. Until the coming of the Lord. That word until means injustice will end one day. There's a day of reckoning coming. Be patient. Hang on, guys. Take the long view because there's a day coming when all wrongs will be made right. And it's the coming of the Lord. He mentions it twice here. He ties patience to the coming of Christ. The second coming of Jesus Christ is by far the most important and critical doctrine in the entire Bible. Think of the gospel records, right? We have Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, where Jesus, in his second longest teaching next to the Sermon on the Mount, gives us in great detail what his physical coming will look like. The book of Acts, all the epistles touch on it. For note takers, those who will listen later on podcast or radio or etc., 1 Corinthians 15, 23, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19, 3, 13, 4, 15, 5, 23. I feel like I'm reading school closings. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1, 2, 8, 1 John 2, 20. We can go on all day. And it's not only James, it's not only Paul, it's Peter. Peter in chapter 1 of his letter says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you have been distressed by wearisome trials and being tested by fire, may rest on the hope of the glory and honor to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what the revelation of Jesus Christ is? The unveiling, it's the parousia, Greek word. It's his coming. Hang on, guys, this, this little trial you're in will all be made right when Christ comes again. Not when we elect the right people to Congress. Now, I think we should elect Christians to Congress. I really do. But that's not going to right wrongs. Neither is a Christian coalition or any other thing man can do. We're outnumbered. We're outgunned. The entire book of Revelation, after the church age, speaks of the coming of Christ. Uh, let's frame it this way. Seven times in Scripture, the New Testament talks about the new birth. How, you think that's important? Well, really important, right? Uh, do you think repentance from faith and dead works is important? Yeah, 20 times. Baptism is important, right? 70 times. How many times do you think the New Testament alone talks about the coming of Christ? How about 300 times? Why is it that important? Why would there be so much attention to it? 
Let me give you a couple of reasons. Number one, the Old Testament, from the time the first prophecy was uttered, where God said it would be the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent, speaking of Christ coming, from that time through Malachi, we have 300 predictions of a Messiah that would come to Israel, culminating in Luke 2, the Christmas story, when Jesus was wrapped in swaddling clothes, and John said, this is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. The Bible is a tale of two comings. Christ comes the first time as a man to die for the sins of the world. He comes the second time in the book of Revelation chapter 19 on a white horse, his thigh dipped in blood, Lord of lords, King of kings, and he treads out the winepress of the wrath of God. He comes once to save and he comes once to judge. The whole Old Testament was pointing to Christ. Why wouldn't the whole New Testament? He comes for a second reason. He comes for you and me, his beloved, the church, the bride of Christ. Remember in John, Jesus sat the disciples down and said, behold, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house, there's many mansions. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you. When I was working for the Boeing company, I carpooled with several guys, and there was a new guy that was joining the carpool, and I found out he was a Christian. So he joins the carpool, I got to know him, and one day I popped the question, I said, what do you think about the second coming? This guy was a Christian for 30 years. He said, you know, to be honest, I never thought about it. Well, you never thought about it? How could you never think about it? It's like the most important thing in the Bible. Number three, I don't know how many Christians know this, the second coming is a time of judgment. God will step in as he did in Noah's day and he will judge the earth. Remember Peter said the world judged by water is reserved. There's a day on God's day planner where God will judge the world by fire. There's a day where God will judge all the injustice that man has wreaked on the earth. And by the way, if you ask yourself, how could Stalin kill 25 million? How could Hitler kill 6 million? You know, one person said, once you believe there's no God, anything's possible. Once you believe there's no retribution, anything's possible. But guess what? Retribution is coming. Retribution is coming in the person of Christ. The God who stepped in in human flesh will one day step in as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, here's what we've done. We've taken the second coming and we've played around with scenarios, right? I'm guilty, right? I grew up with Hal Lindsey books and... I looked at all, you know, earthquake data and wars and rumors of wars, and we talked about, you know, you know cashless societies, and that, that's a lot of fun, you know. But at the end of the day, it's going to be a terrible time. Jesus said in Matthew 24, if these days weren't short, no flesh could survive. Now, there's no time in human history where that was ever possible until now. You know, bows and arrows were never going to kill the entire human race. Uh, someone told me, I don't know if it's urban legend, if we set off every nuclear weapon we'd reverse the axis of the earth. So that's possible. But man isn't bringing that to pass. It's gonna be the wrath of Almighty God. The book of Revelation tells us a third of the earth will burn, a third of the sea will turn to blood, a third of mankind will be gone. In fact, there's a phrase, whoa, whoa, whoa. So you turn on the news today and you see mudslides and earthquakes and all kinds of global catastrophes and terrorism. And they ebb and they flow and they come and go. One day you'll turn on your TV, they will come and they will never stop. There is a generation 
where it will never stop. We will enter into the most documented time in all the Bible, from all the prophets through Revelation, the time, definitive, one, one period of time, the time of God's wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. Now, let's bring it down to where we live. How do we endure? How do we have patience? Well, one day God's going to right all these wrongs, so we can take the long view. He gives us the illustration of the farmer. Now, I don't think we're a farming community, right? I mean, some of you play around with vegetables and all. My dad was a landscaper. I know a little bit about it, right, because my dad, he had to save up all his money, so when he went back in the spring, he'd plant and he'd put seed down in fertilizer, and then you have to believe it's all going to grow, right? Here's what farmers know. They can't control the weather. They can't control the seed. All they can do is plant and then show up to work every day, okay? So there's the illustration of the farmer. Farmers know something else. It's all about seasons. There's seed time and harvest. There's summer and winter. They understand how seasons work. It's fascinating that Job is mentioned here by James of all the people of the Old Testament because if anybody understood seasons, it was Job. Job went through the spring and summer of his experience with God as God gave him wealth and blessing and children and anything a man could desire. He went through the autumn of his experience when his kids were grown and he's sacrificing for them because he's not sure they're living right. And then he went through a winter season that few of us will ever experience to this level where he lost it all. All of his kids died. He lost his reputation, he lost everything. Now, the winter season is something we'll all go through at some level. Some people call it the dark night of the soul. Um, it could be the funky middle where you're in a stuck spot. Uh, some people call it a spiritual drought. Spiritual droughts come for a lot of reasons, by the way. They can come because you're in sin and the heavens are like brass. They can come because God wants to take you away from what's familiar, what you're trusting in. Sometimes God will remove even the way you experience him. Some of the old paths will disappear because he wants to take you on new paths. Sometimes God's weaning us just, just from a series of things, right? Isaiah, when King Uzziah died, saw the Lord. In other words, this king for 40 years was king, and as long as he was there, life was good. When he died, Isaiah said, I had to see the Lord again. So spiritual drought is part of the journey. Job goes through the winter of his life with God, and he gets this counsel, curse God and die. Now, I believe in counseling, but that's bad counsel. And that came from his wife, so that's really bad. We make fun of her, but she lost everything too, right? In other words, Job, clock out. God's not to be trusted. You know what he says? This is remarkable. He says, shall we accept good things from God and not evil? Wow. You know, are we going to take all the blessing and not some of the crappy things of life? James says he's a model of endurance. In other words, he made it to the finish line. In Job 19, he says, I know my Redeemer lives, and I will see him on the last day. I've heard of you through the hearing of the ear. Now I've seen you face to face. Look, this isn't coming from some pastor with ripped jeans and $450 boots, right? This is a guy who went through the wars. This is why you don't put a novice in ministry. 
This is why we need the passion of the young and the wisdom of the old, because we've been through things. And people would line up from here to Cincinnati to talk to Job if he was sitting here today. Job, tell us about faith. Tell us about endurance. Tell us about life the way it really is. We're not interested in cool. We're interested in God's presence. And Job could tell you, because he lived through it. He asked all the why questions, and he went toe-to-toe with God. And James says we need to consider the end of Job's life. In other words, Job went through all this so we might learn something from his life. There's an end God has in mind. Now I know the end of Job, he gets everything doubled and everything turns out well, and it won't always turn out well for us in this life. But you know what the end God has in mind? No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it entered the mind of man what God has planned for us. Take all those books of people that went to heaven and use them for kindling because no one knows and it's far beyond anything they're telling you the end God has for each and every one of us. It's gonna be amazing. It may not be in this life, it may be, but what God has in store is incredible. Now, verse 10 says we should consider the prophets who, in the name of the Lord, experienced, uh-oh, suffering and patience. <laughs> Here's the problem. If you have patience, you're going to have suffering because that's how it's built. I didn't invent this, by the way. This is God's deal. In other words, if you, if you need patience, there's something you're enduring. There's something you're going through. Uh, when we think of the prophets, we talked last week about Elijah. James mentions him, right? Elijah saw more miracles than any of the other prophets. Jeremiah saw none. Elijah saw them all. Uh, outside of Moses, he sees more miracles, and he has this mountaintop experience on Mount Carmel. We'll be there in April. Some of you have been to Israel. It's one of the grand stops on the tour where we overlook the Jezreel Valley, the, the you know, Valley of Armageddon. It's a natural battlefield. It's right in the heart of Israel. And because they had Egypt to the south and Assyria to the north and Babylon on their flank, uh, many natural wars were fought there. And Elijah gets there. There's 850 prophets of Baal, and Israel's there. And he says, how long, O Israel, will you waver between two opinions? In other words, if God's God, serve him, and if Baal's God, serve him. Now, this is logical, right? If Jesus Christ is the Son of God and who he said he was, we should be all in, right? We should be on fire, sold out. If there is no God, then we should eat, drink, and be merry and go after the gods of this world, the Baals, right? Jesus said, don't be lukewarm, be hot or cold, just figure it out. And you know the story, he calls fire down from heaven. It's one of the most mountaintop, miraculous experiences of all time, right? I mean, he's the prophet of God. The problem is James says he had a nature like us, just a man. He's not a Marvel hero. He's not a superhero. How do we know he was a man like us? 1 Kings 19 says, now Ahab went home and told his wife Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So guess what Jezebel does? She sent a messenger to Elijah and said, may the gods deal with me and be it ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. In other words, Jezebel sends him a trash-talking letter and says, you're toast tomorrow. 
Now, this is Elijah. He just killed 850 prophets of Baal with the sword, right? So he's, he's not going to take trash talking from a woman, right? Here's his response. Elijah was afraid. And he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, and he ran farther in the wilderness. He's going as far away as he can go. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. And here's the quote, I've had enough, God. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And he laid down, and he took a nap. He's just like us. God does a miracle on Tuesday, and by Friday you're whining and complaining again, so am I. That's why the power in these earthen vessels has to be of God. And we're going to go through these ebbs and flows, and, we're, and, and this is the journey, guys. It's natural. Um, God is building faith. We need endurance. Now, praise God, Elisha comes along, and God restores, and this is what it's all about, right? James says, look, you have a whole Bible to read. Read Hebrews 11. These people endured. They got to the finish line. Now, James has a little cleanup work here. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble. Again, complain, murmur, gossip. Against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, James is a pastor, right? He's saying, what are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? We're worried about what the color of the carpet is and how loud the music is and the world's going to hell and tomorrow might be the rapture. <laughs> Can I show you a picture that warms my heart? Look up at the screen. That's our upstairs chapel the last two Wednesday nights for Christianity Explored. Is that amazing? That's 40 or so of our volunteers coming out, serving dinner, sitting at round tables with atheists, agnostic, people kicking the tires of faith. Is that beautiful? See, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Highways and byways and getting dirty for God and, and seeing his kingdom go forward, not grumbling and complaining because tomorrow might end it all. That's what James is saying. Guys, let's get into the harvest. Let's... Let's establish our hearts. Let's, let's draw a line in the sand. And let's get about this. Remember I said God's a marinator, not a microwaver? He wants to steep us into who he is. He wants Christ-likeness to be formed in us. One of my favorite verses about spiritual formation is in Ephesians 2.16. Where Paul says, I pray that God will, through his spirit, enable you to grow. That's what God wants us to do, grow. In your inner man, so that Christ may live in your hearts through faith, and that you, planted in love and built in love, will have the strength to grasp the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, knowing the love of Christ, which is beyond knowing, that you might be filled with the utter fullness of God. And so glory be to God, whose power working in you will do infinitely more than you can ask or think. That scripture is not saying God's gonna do more than you can ask or think. He's gonna put a Mercedes in your driveway. That's the prosperity gospel. What it's saying is Christ in you. When you look back at your life, the long view, when you look in the rear view mirror, 10, 20 years, 
God will have done a work in you that you would have never believed. You will be transformed into a different human being. And gives us that tension again where we're growing deeper so we can grow wider. In other words, we don't get locked in a monastery so we can go deep with God. We, we, we go deep with God so we can spread that love to a world in need. You see, one of the characteristics of God is he's long-suffering. But scoffers come and skeptics come and said, where's the promise of his coming? You guys have been waiting for 2,000 years. That's kind of a long time. Jesus said he's coming quickly. Paul believed he was coming. Peter believed he was coming. James believed he was coming. Guess what? He didn't come. Scoffers say, are you guys sure you got it right? Where's the promise of his coming? Since the beginning, the fathers fell asleep. They put this whole thing on autopilot. This they willfully forget, on purpose, by the way, that there were two things in the past that they can't rectify, the fall and the flood. So that's the problem with geologists and evolutionists. They look back and they think there's a continuum. They forget that God stepped into this world, turned it upside down with a flood. That's why they're confused, by the way. They willfully forget that there's a God who can step into time. And they count it as slackness, but God's not slack, wanting none to perish, but all to come to eternal life. So skeptics are saying it's been 2,000 years. Where is he? God's saying, I've been knocking on the hearts of men, on the doors of men's heart for 2,000 years, wanting none to perish, waiting for the last person to come in before the doors of the ark close. Jesus said it'd be like the days of Noah. Noah built an ark in a time it never rained. Preacher of righteousness for 100 years. You know what the key to the Noah story was? It was business as usual. Nobody believed judgment was coming. No one. Now, it's funny if you go to the movies, almost every coming attraction now is about the end of the world. But it's aliens. (laughs) Aliens are coming, or some stupid force, or whatever. (laughs) Jesus is coming. Everybody knows it. Even the people making these dumb movies know it. He's coming. He really is. And we're told to hold on, because one day he's going to make every wrong right. Everything. There's going to be healing for the nations. Yeah, give the Lord a hand. 